Good to be with you this morning. My wife and I have visited with you before, but it's been a while ago, I think, when you were in the other uh, school you were meeting at. And um, I like to visit churches. I preach a fair bit, so I like to visit churches. And it's good to be here with you this morning. Just two things by way of introduction. First of all, uh, my, I use the uh, different version of the Bible that's, than it's found in the bullet, and I use the NIV 1984 edition. So you'll see some slight differences uh, as I read the texts from what you have in the bulletin. Secondly, because we got started late, uh, there won't be a Q&A time afterwards, but I will be available. Um, I was a university professor. I love discussion. You can challenge me. You could criticize me, but I'll be over here. So if you want to talk to me after the service, I welcome that. So let's focus then our attention to God's word, which I will read with each of the main points. After dating on and off for three years, Derek and Tiffany were serious about their relationship, and they agreed that living together was the next step. It seemed as natural as, you know, you'd ride a tricycle before you ride a bicycle. And there were other advantages, no more roommates intruding on uh, romantic dinners, uh, no more waste of time and gas driving back and forth to see each other, uh, no, over, over, no more overnight packing, no more wondering if they were committed. They'd be sharing a place. That seems to be another level of commitment. So they signed a six-month lease on a two-bedroom apartment. But Tiffany didn't trust Derek for his long-term commitment, so she demanded separate closets and bathrooms. And she didn't want her dishes, pots, and pans getting mixed up with his. So his, hers went in one cupboard, his went in another because all she had was six months of security, a signed rental agreement. And she was constantly pushing for more commitment. She wanted intimacy, and she, but at the same time, she wanted a way out if things turned sour. She had one foot in the door and one eye on the exit. And she prepared for the day when the bad things might happen. She would have conversations with Derek where she would ask, What's our where's our relationship going? Are we just going to live together for a while? Do you see us having a future? And Derek would reply, Sure, I'm, I see us having a future. I want to marry you someday, but we can't do it now. We just don't have the money. I don't know how else to prove to you that I'm committed, he said. I left my friends and moved in with you. I say I love you every day. I come home every night. What more do you want? Well, the truth was, she wanted more, and she hated the relationship. She realized it was her way of controlling something, but she couldn't control the future. Whenever they had an argument, Tiffany shut down, pouted, and slept in a separate bedroom, and she would lie awake in the dark waiting for Derek to come, but he didn't come. He'd fall asleep in the other bedroom. And she would lie there thinking, great, Derek is probably getting sick of this. What's going to happen when our lease expires in six months? Will we stay together? He's probably going to leave me. You know how your thoughts are late at night. They get a little dark. Though Tiffany wanted commitment from Derek, her commitment was conditional and temporary. She gave her body and her resources to him, but she withheld her heart. She longed for intimacy and companionship, but living together didn't satisfy. They had friends who lived together, and many of them broke up after a while. It was almost always painful, especially for the one 
who wanted a long-term commitment, and her observation was in those relationships that the one was the, that was the least committed actually controlled the relationship and had power over the other. Well, Tiffany and Derek did eventually get married by eloping, and they've been married for almost 20 years now. They have two kids. But they regret living together. They missed out on the honeymoon experience. They started their marriage with a past, and it took many years of marriage for Tiffany to trust that Derek had a real and lifelong commitment. And now, as committed Christians, they plan on sharing all this with their children because they don't want them to make the same mistake that they did. And they want them to understand the regrets that they have. And they especially want them to know God's design for a man and a woman coming together in the commitment of marriage. A lot of people today want a soulmate for the, that they can share the rest of their lives with, but they have no idea how to get there. And they think that living together will accomplish that. You know the old saying, you don't buy a car without taking it for a test drive. But the problem is that living together doesn't work, and all the studies show that. And only a lifelong commitment of marriage does that. Some people say, well, it's just a piece of paper. Well, so is a mortgage just a piece of paper? So is a degree from college and university just a piece of paper? So is a lottery ticket just a piece of paper? Though don't buy lotteries. Okay, but that's just, that's just an illustration. It's what the piece of paper represents. And when you make the commitment in wedding vows, you're committing to the person through all the positive things and negative things of life. You're basically saying, I'm committing to learn how to love you as long as we both shall live. And that's why God has established marriage to be what it is, because he wants the best for us. He wants us to flourish. He wants us to know the joy and the delight and the growth that's necessary for a lifelong commitment of loving and serving another person. And I suggest to you that this same thing applies to involvement in a particular church of Jesus Christ. We need to grow, but often people are reluctant to commit. And I want to suggest to you that if you cohabitate with a church body, you get some benefits, but not the real thing. Because without that commitment, you're li more likely to leave if things get difficult. If people start to confront you with not who you think you are, but how you come across. Only with that commitment expressed in public vows, parallel to the public vows of marriage, can you truly experience the joys and the good things that God has for you as his child, as you're part of a body of Christ. So I want to suggest this theme to you as I look at these various passages with you this morning. Because Christ makes Christian believers one body in him to live out the gospel. We need to commit to a particular church, and that is specifically by becoming members, submitting to one another and to the elders of the church. First of all, I want to suggest to you that Christians are one body in Christ 
given the one spirit to drink. The first passage is from 1 Corinthians 12. You find that in the bulletin. The body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now notice what Paul says. If you're a Christian, you're part of a body because we are one in Christ. And so as part of that body, we learn what it means to to live by faith, by obedience, by forgiveness, and by new life. And it's not just an individualistic thing, me and Jesus or me and God. Paul refers in Ephesians 1 to the church as the fullness of Christ. So we experience the fullness of Christ in the body. And so what holds us together in a church body is not our ethnic or racial or cultural or economic similarities. In fact, Paul explicitly says, both in Colossians and Ephesians, that the gospel and our union with Christ overcomes all these differences that we are all one in Jesus Christ. And this is signed and sealed to us in two sacraments that occur in the body of Christ. Baptism unites us to the triune God. We baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it also unites us to Christ. We are baptized into Christ, and by being baptized into Christ, we are baptized into his body. And in his body... He gives gives us of his spirit, and his spirit is at work in us as we work together to be his body. And secondly, the Lord's Supper. We all take the Lord's Supper together. Paul refers to our being given one spirit to drink, which seems to be referring to the Lord's Supper. And earlier in this letter, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, he says that when we take the, the wine and the bread they are participation in the body and blood of Christ. But he also says, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf, of course, which is symbolic of Christ. Now, some don't want to commit due to faults in the church, faults in people. Uh, I read this quote from Marcus Mumford. You may have heard Mumford and Sons. They used to be all the rage a few years ago. I don't know what, what they're doing now. But he was interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine at the height of their fame. And he said this. He says, I don't really like that word Christian. It comes with so much baggage. So no, I wouldn't call myself a Christian. I think the word just conjures up all these religious images that I don't really like. I have my personal views about the person of Jesus and who he was. I've kind of separated myself from the culture of Christianity. And he goes on to say that, His spiritual journey is a work in progress. He's never doubted the existence of God. Well, I understand why him and others might be nervous about using the term Christians. There's some crazy people out there, right? Uh, I think of Westboro Baptist Church. You remember a few years ago, they used to show up at funerals of soldiers killed in Iraq and Afghanistan with signs, you know, God hates fags and stuff like that. This is God's punishment for allowing this. And, of course, uh, some of these people on TV, which I never watch, but some of them, a lot of them are good, but some of them I just cringe at the sort of things that they say and promise to people. But you wouldn't stop calling yourself a doctor 
because some doctors abuse patients. And you wouldn't stop calling yourself a businessman or a businesswoman because there's fraudulent business people out there. So you shouldn't avoid using the term Christian. Yeah, some Christians have problems. Some Christians do, I think, things that are not right, contrary to God's word. But Christ unites us together in his church so that we might grow together. And that's why we need the church. Secondly, we need to be committed to a church so our lives are shaped by the grace of the gospel. Second passage there from Romans 12. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, uh, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So here what Paul is doing, starting with chapter 12 in Romans, through through the end of the letter, but here what he's doing is he's unfolding this new life that we have in Christ and what it's supposed to look like and how we are to function together. And, of course, he uses the analogy of the physical body, as we, he also does in 1 Corinthians 12. We have different gifts, and we contribute to community life with those gifts according to the grace that God has given us. And, of course, he points out in 1 Corinthians 12 that the danger is that in our unity and diversity, or sorry, in the diversity and different gifts that we contribute, we can think that you know our gifts are better than other gifts. Or conversely, we can think, well, my gifts are not important. I'm not really significant for the life of the church. But Paul says in that passage, all of our gifts are important. All of us contribute something. And so in these verses I read, Paul tells us how to live that out and what that means in that we learn to love fellow Christians sincerely as members of the family of God. That means we need to leave our egos at the door, figuratively. We need to leave our egos at the door when we gather with the people of God. We don't boast about our gifts. We don't depreciate our gifts because Christ says they're all important. And we welcome and honor the gifts that are contributed. You know, some people say, well, the church is full of hypocrites. And, of course, what that implies is, well, I'm not like them. I'm not a hypocrite. Breaking news, we're all hypocrites. We're all hypocrites. Different degrees of it, of course, but we're all hypocrites. So we need, that's why we need one another, to point out those areas of hypocrisy in our lives. This is all about graciously loving particular people in a particular church. Think of somebody who says, I love people, I love humanity. It's just individuals that I can't get along with. Be Like me saying, um, I love all women in a platonic sense. I love all women, but I don't really care much for my wife. 
No, God brings us together with particular people so we learn how to live together, to minister together, to serve together, to be ambassadors of Christ together. So how do you love sincerely? How do you keep your zeal? How do you keep your spiritual fervor? How do you enter into people's lives so that you mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice? How do you not give in to pride and conceit and avoid associating with people of low position, or at least people that you don't think are like you? Well, you do it by committing yourself to a particular group of people and learning together with your brothers and sisters how to live out this gracious calling of loving and serving one another by the grace that flows from the gospel. You worship with them. You gather around God's word and the sacraments with them. You gather with them to pray. You commit to mutual encouragement so you won't slide into spiritual laziness or develop a kind of consumer mentality. Well, I'm in it as long as I get something out of it. Remember Jesus' words, Matthew 10.45, which many people think, or Mark 10.45, which many people think is the pivotal verse in the Gospel of Mark. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you can't do this from a distance. You can't do this as some, from some free period, uh, spirited stance. You can't hang around as long as it doesn't demand too much or doesn't involve getting involved with other people's problems. You know, one eye on the exit. If you do that, you'll be a perpetual adolescent Christian. Some of you have seen that um, this great uh, Evian uh, water commercial that was that came out a few years ago was these adults that walk, would buy the storefronts and a big picture window, but it was actually a mirror, and so they would see themselves as toddlers in there, right? And they would dance around and do different things. It was a very cute commercial. When you commit to a church and to growing along with others, what you see in yourself is some of that toddler stuff. Because as you know, toddlers, right, age two on, they suddenly realize they're individuals. They realize they can say no. They realize that they, they can do a temper tantrum to try to get their own way. And of course, good parents will deal with that. You don't want people, kids to, to learn to live like that. That's a, not a healthy way to enter into adult life. And the same is the case with church, with the body of Christ. You know, my involvement at New City Church Hamilton has had led me to see some things about myself. I sort of knew this before, but it became really struck home to me that I'm a very impatient person. And when Con and our pastor first came, because my wife and I were there from the beginning, we didn't have elders, so there would be feedback, and he asked me to be part of a group that gave him feedback. And I would give him feedback. And I would criticize his sermons and criticize what he did in worship and this sort of thing. And I was trying to make him the super pastor. And one of the fellow pastors in the presbytery came up to me one day and said, Gene, I know you're trying to help him, but you're discouraging him. And I realized that. I realized that I was pushing him too hard. I was trying to make him something that maybe he would become in 20 years, but not right off the bat. And so I apologized to him. 
And I've tried harder to be patient and loving and kind, not just to Conan, but to all people, to not give in to my impatience. When I'm driving in a car, well, I'm still working on that, but, you know, at least I'm dealing with people. We only gain the fruit of the Spirit as we are committed to a particular group of people, interacting with them in the body and saying, I'm going to stick with you so that we can grow together, mature into the fullness of grace together, as we learn to confess to each other, forgive each other, work together, and when we rub each other the wrong way through different goals or different procedures that we think should happen, we learn to work that out. Thirdly, we need to be committed to a church to be discipled by Christ. 1 Peter 5, Peter writes, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flocks that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. One of the images that Jesus gives us in the Gospel of John is himself as the good shepherd. The good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And why does he do that? He tells us in that chapter, I have come that they, my sheep, may have life and have it to the full. He lays down his life. He laid down his life so that we might have the fullness of life. Well, Jesus isn't around anymore, but he appoints people to be his under-shepherds, pastors and elders, to care for the flock, to feed them, to serve them, to sacrifice for them. And we need this care and oversight for our Christian growth and life. Here Peter tells the pastors and elders how to shepherd God's people how to be under-shepherds. And he deals with three temptations that could cause them to stray from following the example of Christ. Don't shepherd the people grudgingly because you have to. Do it willingly because that's what God called you to. Don't do it for money or other material advantage, but be eager to serve freely, just as Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. He suffered willingly for the good of his people. And don't lord it over people, abusing your authority by bossing people around, but be examples of humility, examples of Christ. And of course, pastors and elders are still sinners, so they also need accountability, right? And that's why in our system of government, we have accountability at every level, at the congregational level, at the regional level, at the denominational level. We need accountability. Every one of us does even pastors and elders. So Christ draws us to himself to show us how to shepherd people. I'm talking about pastors and elders. But that involves all of us submitting to one another, humbly uh, accepting Christ as shepherd. 
I grew up in Regina, Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan's biggest import is export is people. So here I am. I've been exported. Um, I grew up there. I became a Christian after university, and I got to know this guy. Uh, you know, shortly after I was a Christian, uh, his name was Wolfgang. Good German name. He was just an amazing guy. Very intelligent. Great ability to talk to non-Christians. He could say things to them boldly that I could never do. He just had this amazing ability. But he wouldn't commit to a church. He would only go sporadically. Married a lovely young Christian woman. They had two kids. But Wolfgang remained uncommitted to the church, even though his wife went faithfully and was involved. Sadly, he eventually left his wife and completely cut himself off from Christians and ended badly. And I really felt pain for him because he was such a gifted guy. But he wouldn't commit. And there were issues in his life that he didn't want to hear about. And it had very unfortunate consequences in his life. In contrast, I have known Christians with fewer gifts, with greater struggles in their lives, but they have been committed to a church. And they grow because they are part of the body of Christ. And all of us need to be committed to the church of Christ that he might shepherd us through those he has put in leadership. Fourthly, We need to be members of a church to submit to Christ, ultimately. In Hebrews 13, the author writes, Obey uh, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to to you. If Christ shepherds us through the church, and especially through the pastors and elders, we can only submit to Christ as we submit to the under-shepherds. For they keep watch over us as those who have to give an account. They don't just have the power and authority to do whatever they want, to throw their weight around. They have to give an account. And they have, in a sense, they have to give a greater accounting because of that position that they hold, that Christ has called them to. They need to learn to teach, to encourage, to admonish, to rebuke, as Christ directs them in his word and fills them with his spirit. And he calls us to submit to them and obey them. It makes their calling a joy and not a burden. And of course, the Bible says that we have to submit to all kinds of people. That's not unique. Submit to parents, submit to bosses at work, submit to teachers in school, submit to civil authorities. All of us have to submit. And when we submit, though it may feel like, or we might have ideas in our head, that it's going to restrict us or keep us from really being ourselves, those are lies. If you will not put yourself into a membership commitment in a church where you vow to submit to the leadership and to fellow believers, then you are effectively saying, I don't want to submit to Christ. One of the early church fathers, Cyprian, said, we can no longer have God for his father. He he or she can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his or her mother. And that's the point he's making.
I'm in my second marriage. Uh, though we, this year we're going to celebrate our 40th anniversary, so I'm not a serial monogamist, just so you know that. Um, my first wife and I, uh, we uh, had some issues in the first few years, and after a few years she left. She said it was temporary, but she soon got involved with another man and uh, who had also left his wife, his spouse, and after six months it became clear that she was not interested in reconciling with me. I planned to come to Toronto, work on my doctorate, uh, but I met with the elders. There was a committee that the Presbytery established to give oversight when ministers run into these kinds of issues. They give oversight. And I met with them in July, so I was planning to go to Toronto in September. And they said to me, you know, people often give up too quickly or they react to one another. And you need to give it time. You need to go the extra mile. So they said to me, we think you should stay here another year. And I said, that's a hard saying. I've, I, I've quit my job. I don't have a job. I'm, I'm getting ready to go to Toronto, work on my doctorate. But by the grace of God, I submitted to that. I accepted that. And that was the toughest year of my life. Nothing changed with my wife and her involvement with the man. But on their prompting, I would meet with her occasionally and talk to her. You can imagine what a frustrating experience that that was. And so after another year of difficulty, you know, the hardest year of my life, I saw the wisdom of that in retrospect. I had not lost a year. I had gained so much because I could then file for divorce and know I had done everything I could. I'd made sacrifices. I'd gone the extra mile. But more importantly, God worked in me some changes that need to happen. And I didn't do it all alone. I had some people that I talked to. I had a, this committee that I would, uh, you know, people I would talk to and express my frustrations and my anger and my discouragement. And they would give me feedback and they would encourage me to stick with it. I grew because of that. And typically, that's not unusual. Often the hardest things we go through as Christians is precisely the place where God is working in our lives to do some wonderful things. But we have to listen to the body of Christ. We have to be accountable. We have to submit to the, to the advice that we get from others. Because Christ makes us believers one in him and to live out the gospel, we need to commit to a particular church. We need to become members, submitting to one another and to the elders of the church. I know sometimes we struggle to say, well, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can really be myself. You know, that's the old idol of authenticity. I don't know if I can be authentic to myself. How is Jesus authentic to himself? Did he affirm his personality? Was it the triumph of the will in Jesus? His identity came from service, from sacrifice, from giving himself for his people. And the glory he had after the resurrection, he had that before. 
So he didn't gain anything new. But the glory is for his service. The glory is because for eternity, he has a human body with the marks of his suffering on them, in his hands and feet and his side. How do you find fulfillment and flourishing? Not by cohabitating, whether with someone else or cohabitating with the church, by commitment. That's where you find what you're looking for. And Jesus gives us this through his word so that we might find the fullness of life. He wants us to find the fullness of life. So we commit to other people. Love and submission and service. Because that's how we become mature. That's how we grow. We grow together. We grow in the interaction of the messiness of our lives. Commitment to Christ means commitment to one another. Service of Christ means service to one another. Sharing joys and sorrows. Even as we learn things about ourselves that we don't like to learn about ourselves. So don't cohabitate with the church. Don't have one foot in and one eye on the exit. If you do that, you'll never be the man or woman of God that Christ wants you to be. Make the commitment. Public vows. Vowing to submit to one another and to Christ's shepherds. And you will find the grace, the growth, and the fullness of life that Christ has for you. Join me in prayer, please. Lord Jesus, um, we praise you that the Son with the Father from eternity in the relationship of love and mutual glory, you left that all behind to give yourself for us so that we might receive forgiveness and new life and a hope and be part of your body. And thank you in uniting us to yourself that you make us a body that you bring together in which your spirit is working. And we pray, Lord, that if any who are here or who are viewing online, who are Christians, have not yet made the commitment or delaying that, I pray that you'd work in their hearts to see, to not be afraid and to not be arrogant but to submit to you by submitting to the body of Christ and becoming members of a church. Lord, you know our fears. You know the things that um, in us that perhaps we don't want to face. But we want to live by faith in you. And faith in you means as we do these things that may be hard for us, as we learn to love and sacrifice and forgive and bear one another's burdens together, we will be all that you want us to be. Thank you for the gift of your spirit and your promise to be among us. May we honor you in a commitment not only to you, but a commitment to your people. We pray in Christ's name.